children are already gone. Awesome. All the rest of us are grown children. <laughs> Let's be real. And so, praise the Lord. Here we are, chapter 3 of 2 Timothy. This is four weeks left, two weeks per chapter. Two chapters left. So, we're entering into the world of discernment. This is something that uh, Chris and I both agree upon, that this would be awesome if we could give you some discernment and, and knew how to ultimately give you discernment. Because that's the problem, right? Like, I'm not by your side looking over your shoulder going, are you sure you want to do that? Are you sure you want to do that? Oh, come on. The Holy Spirit might be doing that, but I'm certainly not. And as much as I certainly want to help, I can't always help those that don't want to be helped, if you will. And so God does give us the gift of discernment. And I want to start off by saying that we do have a good, good father because he prepares us for what to expect. If he just sugarcoated everything and said, oh, it's all going to be okay. Don't worry about it. No one's going to be mean to you. Everyone's going to be nice to you. He'd be like, well, that would be great until you walked outside the doors and that didn't happen. And then God would have you know, given you a promise or told you something that he didn't keep. But the reality is, is he keeps all of his promises and he tells you the truth regardless of the cost. And so it is our job in a sense to use the gifts that God has given us. And discernment most definitely is one of those gifts. There's the outside of a person that we see, and then there's the inside of a person that we can't see. And in the scope of discernment, I also think very much so of what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. And, you know, the ultimate, just summarize it for you. Don't be naive. Don't be a condemning jerk. But use discernment. <laughs> and the way that he says use discernment is probably the most backwards way of using discernment I've ever heard. Don't throw your pearls at pigs and don't give dogs what's holy. And then there's a lot of culture that you have to understand. I mean, I'll just explain the one. Pigs, they devour anything and everything. Whatever you give them, they're going to devour. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter if it's something precious. Doesn't matter if it's a deceased human body. They'll eat it. They'll eat it all. And so don't give something that's valuable of yours to people who are just going to devour it and not care, right? Use discernment. Do they care? Do they not care? And so the same concept with don't give dogs what's holy. And so um, that was kind of a long introduction. Let's get started. So dear Heavenly Father, certainly, as always, I thank you for the blessings in our lives, especially those we fail to see. But Lord Jesus, we see your church. We see your loving arm and hands around us. We see your word. And so, Lord Jesus, I just ask you to tune our hearts and our mind to your will so that we may walk stronger and more confidently in this life until we're finally back home with you forever. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 through 9. It was page 1098 in the blue Bibles in front of you in the pew backs, but if you brought your own, you're on your own, right? So, all right. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, 
lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at knowledge of the truth. Just as Jonas and Yambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. And so, even though every sermon seemingly can be standalone, understand that this sermon was not out of a vacuum. It has a lot to do with the first two chapters of 2 Timothy, as well as it has to do with what continues in Timothy. And so, carrying over a little bit from last week in verses 24 to 26 of chapter 2, Paul encourages Timothy of what it should realistically look like for the Lord's servant because if you are kind to people, if you are gentle, if you're able to teach, if you're patient, you're going to be very, very, very different from everybody else in the rest of the world. So carrying over again, it was kind of a love Jesus, love people mentality because adhere to the word of truth in the first section that we talked about. Uh, certainly be useful to God in that sense. If, if we love God and we stand by him, it would make natural sense that we would want to serve him in a capacity. That's ministry in itself, service. And so love Jesus in those two regards, embrace his word. Certainly, you know, as far as it depends on you, you know, be useful in that regard. And then for the gratitude that he's done, but the Lord's servant certainly must be different by learning how to love and teach other people by the power of the Holy Spirit that dwells within us. Because, as verse 25 and 26 point out, God may use you to grant the listener repentance and faith in order to escape from the snare of the devil. And so you want to know what the snare of the devil is in a sense, Understand this, as Paul starts off for Timothy, again, not giving him a sunshine and rainbows type of picture that you're going to be able to work with everybody and that everybody's going to be responsive to you and that everybody's going to, you know, it's not an all-inclusive thing. There are certainly times we have to use discernment. If we're hanging out with people who are hurting us and we realize that they're hurting us, why do we continue to hang out? with these people? That's ultimately and foundationally the question. So, Paul says, however, after giving him all that good news from chapter 2, here is what you're up against. <laughs> Be careful. Use discernment. Be aware. 
The reality of the truth is you make probably hundreds of decisions every single day. Some small, some big. All of those decisions, what is the basis for making that decision? Is it self? Or is it God's will? Those foundationally are the two options. Certainly there are more. Nothing can be all-inclusive. Remember, like I said, if I said, it's always this way, I'm lying to you. <laughs> because it's not always. There's no such always out there. You've got 8 billion people on this planet, each one of them different, each one of them created in the image of God with different gifts and talents, each one of them unfortunately influenced by the prince of the power of the air and the culture of the world as well. And so there's positives and there's negatives within each and every one of us. Now, verse 1. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. First I want to point out, will come. Will come. Not if, will. And I want to dis, dis, diffuse in a sense, if there is any type of fear in this, that there need not be any kind of fear in this. Because this has been the same way forever, right? So human beings have a problem inside of them. It's called sin. The Greek word is hamartia, and it means missing the mark. We all miss the mark of glorifying God. And as we miss that mark of glorifying God, the reality of the sin is like, ah, that's no big deal. I'll just come back, circle around, and glorify myself. And that's where we stand. And that's where every human being stands. Some have been certainly changed and saved by the Lord Jesus, that they no longer live for themselves. It's no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me and the life I live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. My ministry is to serve. That's what being a minister is. All the saints were called to the work of ministry in Christ. You are all servants of another. But this last days thing always freaks people out as if we're, we're getting there and we're getting there and we're getting there. But I want you to know throughout all redemptive history, we're, we're pushing towards this last days. And we are technically in the last days, but we're also pushing 2,000 years of last days. So how serious is last days if we've got 2,000 of them so far. 2,000 years worth of last days. Because as far as redemptive history goes too, the last thing we're waiting for is for Jesus to return. That's it. The plan of salvation is already done. The victory is done. We're literally spinning, waiting till Jesus comes back and God continues to save more people for his own possession for eternity. He's not done saving people yet. But when God is done saving people, this world goes away and this will be no more. So those last days have existed forever. But understand that the problem really here isn't so much the last days, but he's encouraging that there will come a time where this all ends. And so as much as we just read about people, which is us, 
and all of these wicked, evil things that they've talked about, that certainly those follow us, but there is a day where that won't exist. And that's the end. And no more. So, we go to 2 through 5, or verse 2 through 5, and we see all of these attributes. And no, I'm not doing a word study on negative words like this, because I think you get the point. And the overarching point is what I just said in regards to sin, that this is all about self. If you look at every one of these, it all is about you. And it all is about yourself. Lover of self? Well, that's kind of obvious. Lover of money? Why do you love money? What does money give to you and why do you love it? It's about self. Because it's about you. That's why you love the money, because it does something for you, where you feel that this inanimate object is going to give you comfort. It's going to give you security. How far from the truth that really is. Pride? I mean, that's a foundational problem. The, uh, the pride of life is really what leads us all astray. What's our meaning for life? What's our purpose? Someone that's arrogant, that's still someone prideful, but also someone who believes that they're better than you and more right than you. So again, I'm not going to go through all of these, but I hope you see, because it's very, very foundational to all of this, that this is all about self. It is all about individuals. And if we're honest and we think about the culture and the society around us, that's exactly what I watch when I see television commercials. This product's going to make your life so much better. This is why you should live in fear of this happening over there. This is why you should enjoy this program. This is why you... Culture continually breeds that it's entirely about you. But I remind you of the truth that life in and of itself isn't about you. Even though the culture has made it about you, the ugly sin that lives inside you has made this about you, but the way God created the world and the way God created human beings, you know, and especially when you consider all of God's creation, such as the angels in heaven and everything else, like, we weren't made to live alone. It wasn't about individualism. It was always about togetherness. We were created to be dependent on God. There's so much not self in Christianity, but there is so much. It's all about self in the world and the culture around us. So we kind of have to look, kind of have to see, and we kind of have to use some discernment to be like, okay, I don't know this person very well. I can't, I can see what they're doing, but I can't read a heart and I can't read a mind. I don't fully know. And so in other scriptures, they say, look at the fruits of their lives. And we talk about the fruit of the spirit, the love, the joy, the peace, the patience, the kindness, the goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against those things, there is no law. So you are free to do those till the cows come home for all eternity, all of those, because those are not corrupt type of actions. They are gifts of the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. And they're also gifts that grow the more, the, the, like over time. Like I was saved 11 years ago. You better believe I've grown in love. You better believe I've grown in joy. I've grown in peace. I've certainly grown in patience and everything else. And 
I tell you what, I didn't really want to some of the times, but it has certainly proven profitable in my life, and I am much more even-keeled and steadfast than I was before. It takes a lot to kind of throw me off my rocker these days. But that just comes with time and maturity and as we, we learn and as we know. And so, as I said, all these attributes run around self. They're shaped by the culture, the society, those people that are around us. And there are both positive and negative influences in your life based in any of those situations. Now, what these ultimately mean and what they ultimately show is our worldview. It's not something that we talk about on a regular basis, but it is certainly something that's important. And when I say, what's your worldview, the real question when we're talking about worldview is, what's your meaning for life? What's your purpose? Why are you here? What's your, what, why does the world exist? That's why we go through, what's your worldview in that regard? And then it goes down from there, because we're starting with a very big picture about why is life even here? And then it goes, you know, certainly to the smaller details of our lives, like, am I going to eat that red popsicle or am I going to eat the blue popsicle? Which one do I have more of? Which one do I like more? It's about me, right? It's about my likings. So, but the world, the world views shape certainly our values as well as our value system. Because if you're not here because God created the world and there's no creator, then you're left to come up with your own conclusion and your own ideas about why the world exists and what you should be doing on a day-to-day -day basis in that world. And based on that thought and philosophy, it acts with every single one of your actions on a daily basis. So if my worldview is to collect as much information as possible, and that's what it is to build myself up and to grow in knowledge of things, then yeah, my worldview and the vast majority of what I'm going to do is towards that goal. Okay, so I'm probably going to study a lot. I'm probably going to go to a lot of school and a lot of education. I'm going to read a lot of books on a lot of different topics. Maybe I'm going to talk to a lot of different people about those topics, but you see where I'm going. It's setting the trajectory of my life. My worldview sets the trajectory of my life. Now, praise be to God that we know God. I pity all those that don't know God or have him, Jesus, in their life. Because what is their worldview? What is their meaning of life? And so we see this a lot. And what it says here in verse 5, after he goes through all the list of all the things that all of us are, I don't know if you're like me, but have you hit like every single one of those? Like I've been all of those at different points in time for different reasons. In fact, I still might be, you know, closer to those than the holiness in some of these. You know, I've made it known that I, I struggle with mercy. I do. I really do. Um, but that's me. It's my fault. It's the way I was raised. The Lord's teaching me otherwise, and he's giving me opportunities in my life, uh, begrudgingly, <laughs> mind you, to show other people mercy. And so that's kind of how this works. 
this is how I'm going to grow. But this appearance of godliness, people inside the church doing religion for their own personal gain. Or maybe the easier way to explain this is you see people being religious on the street, praying for others. Maybe they're calling themselves prophets because they're going to tell you some message that the Bible hasn't already told you. Maybe they're going around calling themselves apostles because, well, I don't even know why. I'll be brutally honest. Why someone would call himself an apostle because that's one who walked with Jesus and one who was sent by Jesus only by biblical definition. But this one will be easier. Healer, like Benny Hinn or other people that have the miraculous power of healing. And they can do that. And when they tap you on the head, you fall on the floor and then you get back up and you're, you're healed from the cancer or whatever it is that was ailing you before he touched you on the head. Right? They're out there. And they're doing this. I'm not giving you bad examples. There are legitimate people doing these types of things out there in the name of religion, the hands and feet work that are, again, I guess let's just summarize this. There are more false teachers out there proclaiming Christ for personal gain than honest teachers out there who don't do it for any other reason other than Jesus is Lord. He's changed my life tremendously. You guys need to hear about him. I need you to know about Jesus. He's that good. He's that amazing. And if you'll listen to me, I'll tell you as much as you want to hear. I'll give you my whole life story. I'll give you anything and everything. I just want you to know that Jesus is awesome. <laughs> and that, yeah, yeah, I'll just stop with that. And so having that appearance of godliness, and certainly there are those people out there and you're like, well, how do I know? You know, because I don't know their heart motives. But let's be real. The more you've learned, the more you've learned from the word of God, the more you see the character of Jesus, the more you learn about God's plan and God's redemption, the more you ought to be like, yeah, that's, that's a little screwy. Like, why is that healer guy hitting people on the head, then they fall down, then they get back up? And why is he charging a lot of money to do that? Because if you had that gift, and if God gave you that gift for free, why are you charging so much money to pass along that free gift that God gave you to, you know, help others, which is our call in ministry, right? This is going to get more clear in the second point, but understand that the outward motions are the first things that people see. Dwight Lyman Moody, uh, I gave you that book, The Overcoming Life. I think there's one copy of that book left. Praise the Lord. Hopefully you've been reading it and enjoying it. Dwight Lyman Moody has an amazing quote that really stuck with me throughout the years. And, and it ties in tremendously to this point. Are you ready? You ready? You got your ears open? A hundred people. hundred people. One person out of those hundred people are going to read the Bible. The other 99 people are going to read the Christian. Tell me I'm wrong. I'll get my little stand here. Prove me I'm wrong. 
<laughs> but uh, <laughs> ultimately, isn't that the truth? I'm, I'm, I'm not picking on anybody, I promise. I'm willing to put money that despite all of this, there are many of us that have not read the Bible cover to cover. I'm willing to put money on it. And I shouldn't be gambling. But I am. In this moment, because that is the reality of the truth. And I don't want you to feel guilty. The Holy Spirit's going to convict you, though, like, duh. <laughs> Isn't that right? So are you actually going to read the Word of God, or are you going to continue to read the cover band that is so far from God? They look like this, lovers of money, proud, arrogant. And unfortunately, in the world and in society today, so many people are making judgments about Christianity and the Lord Jesus based on the actions of other people who get airtime on TV and the actions of other people that are much more noisier than the patiently enduring, evil, soft-spoken Christian who patiently endures, but who loves Jesus. So, the gospel reversal in all of this, too, <clears throat> I want you to think about, especially as we're talking a lot about self. Did Jesus come for himself? Did he come down the mountain for himself to be like, I'm here. Get on your knees. I'm here. Or did he come to serve? Was it about himself or was it about the people that he desired to help and the people he desired to save? Hmm. You should know that answer. <laughs> so my retort back to you is, who do you live for? Why are you here? And then lastly, why do you do the things that you do? Right? You wanted provocative. You even said it this morning in service. Like, I get it, man. The gift of discernment from our Lord Jesus is the ability to be able to see and to understand the world and people as God created and sees them himself. Because up until the point that you understand God and you see the world and you see people as God sees people, you're all subjected to your own individual situations and circumstances of your upbringing and then the culture and the media as your influencers. Sometimes it's positive, more often than not it's negative, especially considering how countercultural God is to the world. Despite him being the creator of the world, everything has flipped to move away from him, which is a sad tragedy of life. And so, those are the outward appearances. I hope you're able to discern and maybe even see just a little bit of how maybe some of those people, while using God or holding up a Bible for a photo shoot, aren't necessarily Christians. Just because you do the actions doesn't mean you care about the Lord Jesus. And usually it's pretty easy to tell. But then we get to this next part. In verse 6 and 7, I'm lumping together and 
for personal sanity, I'm kind of circumventing verse 6, but I want to stress the point of what the problem is and what Paul's informing Timothy of, is that some seek self-gain through manipulation and abuse of others. And I hate it. can't stand it. And I see it pretty frequently. And it irks me. And then I become very much like the first point, unholy. I want to hurt. I want to do things that aren't right. But in my head, because of the culture and the upbringing, totally justified. Because I can justify just about anything that I want to do for my own sake of righteousness. But when I look at it through the lens of God's definition of righteousness and his sake and his purpose, uh, I just can't do the terrible acts I want to do for those people who manipulate and abuse other people that have an outward appearance of godliness, but really terrible heart motives. And when I say heart motives, I haven't said it for a while, but understand from a biblical perspective, we're not talking about the heart with its blood and beating organ. The heart in Jewish culture was the culmination of everything that you are. It was your physical, it was your emotional nature, it was your spiritual nature, it was all three wrapped up into one. That is the heart of the human being. And as the prophet Jeremiah, through the words of God the Father said, the heart is deceitfully wicked above all other things. So the core of who you are is pretty ugly. Praise the Lord that he changes it. Praise the Lord he gives us the Holy Spirit too to be able to endure, to be able to process and to reveal just how wicked the human heart really is. And so I would also say in verse 7 there, always learning they're always learning like shouldn't this be a really good thing always right always learning they're lying right now because <laughs> they're always learning but at the very same time this always begs the question well what are they learning <laughs> if you're always learning but you're never coming to the knowledge of the truth what are you learning and I think that's a question a lot of us have to ask ourselves too. Is this really worth my time, effort, and energy to learn to be a part of this? And I want to throw this quote from C.S. Lewis, who is a phenomenal uh, author as well, and a, a prominent theologian. And it all revolves around learning. And what are we learning? If Christianity is false... It is a complete waste of time. However, since Christianity is true, it is the most important thing you will ever do and ever learn about. The only thing Christianity can't be is something moderate in between. And I find that there are more moderates than not. That maybe they should just be leaning towards, eh, it's not that important. I'm half-heartedly a Christian. I'm half-heartedly for God. Half is not whole, and half is as much as not. Consider that.
and consider that in what we're learning. And is this important or is it not important to us? Now, whenever I see this verse too, I want to think and I want you to give you a, a tangible example. And I'm going to not attack Mormons, but I'm going to inform you about some Mormon theology. I know. I know, Chris. It's okay. We'll do this after service. We'll just we'll bash the snot off. <laughs> no. So Mormonism has this amazing thing called polygamy. Okay? Maybe you've heard of it. Right? <laughs> wow. Wow, that was amazing. <laughs> polygamy. And everybody's like, <sighs> just drop their heads. Like, you all clearly know what this is about. So polygamy, the marriage of more than one woman to the same man. I think there was a TV show not too long ago, wasn't it called My Sister Wife or something to that effect? Now, here's what's even more amazing, and I want to tell you all this. The Mormon church has banned polygamy for the last 120 years. If they've banned it for the last 120 years, why are there shows like My Sister's Wife coming on and people still practicing polygamy? Do you think there might be some type of advantage for the individual, perhaps the male in this situation, to try to get this type of religion in the door? Maybe. I could be wrong, could be barking up the wrong tree, but I feel like there's a purpose behind the madness of why they would do the things that they do. And so, here's what's interesting. It was an important part, polygamy, important part of the teachings of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints for over a half century. The practice began during the lifetime of Joseph Smith, but became publicly and widely known during the time of Brigham Young. Today, the practice of polygamy is strictly prohibited in the church, as it has been for over 120 years. Are you as confused as I am, in a sense? Okay, so this is banned for 120 years, and yet I still see people doing it. What's the heart motive behind why they do it? The church just said point blank, and I got that information right off their website. Church of Jesus Christ Latter-day Saints, right off their website. It's been banned for 120 years, and yet there's still TV shows coming on in the last decade about Mormonism and polygamy, right? Wild. But let me, let me throw this out there for you, too, about the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I'm going to give you a statement, and then I'm going to need you to ask yourselves, is it true or false? Marriage is eternal when you are married in the temple. Is that biblical or unbiblical? Marriage is eternal. Sounds kind of good, right? Well, Jesus is eternal. Jesus is Lord. All of those things. If you'd please turn to Matthew chapter 22. And we're going to read briefly verse 23 to 33. Nine eighteen. Okay, thank you, Jennifer. This is about the Sadducees ask about the resurrection. The same day Sadducees came to him. 
who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses said, If a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So too the second and third, all the way down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, You are wrong, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And I'm going to stop right there. Like angels in heaven, meaning not physically like angels in heaven, but you will be in heaven with God. God has a whole plan, and I don't want a rabbit trail, but I know a lot of people got sidetracked on this in a study before. Human beings are not angels. Human beings do not transform into angels. They are separated, creating beings. The Bible speaks of this clearly. When a wife of seven dies, she doesn't become an angel. Like angels in heaven, meaning in heaven with God, like the angels are. Okay? And also without sin, as God cannot be near sin. So, and then the next part's the best part. And as for the resurrection of the dead... Have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. I love that. I love that last part. It's not God of the dead. He's God of the living. They're all alive. You will live eternally. But Back to my point, ultimately, the Mormons, they say marriage is eternal. You guys are going to be married in heaven forever. You get married in our temple. These are the blessings. These are these things. From a biblical standpoint, they're false. It's a false teaching. It's a false belief that's not biblically centered. I can't tell you how many other places out there do. I would say the vast majority of them do. Again, the heart motives and how much you know about Scripture in and of itself will help inform your decisions and your discernment-making process on a daily basis. So as you're making those 100 decisions a day, again, just consider it that, hey, what's God's view? What's God's plan? Try to see through those Jesus-colored glasses, if you will. I don't know how else to enlighten this for you, but you do have knowledge of the truth, and you can make better educated decisions rather than pleasing of self and for the benefit of others. And so, going into verse 8 and 9, I want you to know that Johns and Jambres are not mentioned in the Bible elsewhere. Okay? So it's kind of a loose teaching. However, according to extracurricular Jewish literature written by historians, it is believed that Jonas and Jambres were magicians in the court of Pharaoh during the time of Moses and the ten plagues, which adds another whole dimension to this conversation. 
And so these two men were magicians during the plagues at Pharaoh's court. They opposed God by performing similar miracles that God did, such as turning staffs into snakes, water into blood, and creating frogs out of thin air in Pharaoh's defense. Now, when Jonas and Jambres couldn't do any more magic tricks to keep up with God, their limited powers were revealed. So much like false prophets, even today, they make promises to people that they can't keep on behalf of God. Words and deeds. That's ultimately what this is all about, is words and deeds. You see the deeds and the tangible actions, but the words, while they may sound good, if not backed up by the deeds, are just empty words without any type of promise or any type of backing. And the last thing that any of us want is for someone to overpromise and underdeliver to us. The good news is God doesn't overpromise and God surely doesn't underdeliver in this. The danger is for human beings like those that call themselves prophets to be like, yeah, this is going to happen and that's going to happen and all these things are going to happen. If you could please give me some money for my ministry, that'd be great. What else can I tell you? What else do you need to know? What else would you like to hear? Because I'm happy to tell you whatever you want to hear as long as the Benjamins keep rolling in, right? And that the nature of the heart motives behind why some do the things that they do, or it's power, or it's the manipulation and abuse of people that they're doing. So, so false prophets, even today, make promises to people that they can't keep on behalf of God, like money, health, power, prophecy, plans, purposes in their future, all in a vain effort to get something out of their listeners, whether that's money, fealty, sex, power, or other, some other type of twisted, jacked-up reason that they may have. So when you are exploring new information, or more so the Bible itself, most important thing in the world, you will likely find many different views and interpretations of this. Just like the Bible itself, we've got the English Standard Version, we've got the New International Version, we've got the New Living Translation. Some guy decided to make another translation and call it the message. He just pretty much made it however he wanted to. It's paraphrased for his own glory and his own good. Uh, there's other ones called the promise. There's, there's a lot of translations out there. So what's reasonable, what's responsible, and what is a good translation, right? Well, I'm not here to tell you, and I'm not with you 24 hours a day where you can be like, hey, Eric, I'm thinking about getting this book. Would this be a good thing or a bad thing? And I'm like, yeah, it's good. And then I'll put my little seal of approval stamp on it. And we'll move on with our lives, right? That's not how it works. I'm hoping to equip the saints for the work of ministry that they might be able to stand on their own feet. And so when you're exploring new information or more so the Bible, you're going to find many different views and interpretations, some helpful, some maybe not so helpful. Here are five questions to consider. These are extracurricular questions too, in a sense, because, well, we've got to get the outside in and inside out and everywhere else that we're going. But again, just consider these 
Hopefully they're a help. What is the source of the information? Can you personally verify what this person is saying to be true or false? It's kind of a big deal. Can you verify it to be true? Can you verify it to be false? Or do you very simply have to take it for what it is? Makes a big difference. Question two. Does this source of information line up with other reputable resources that I know about? Do I just listen to this one person and call it a day because, boy, I like what this person has to say. I like the way they look. I like how they talk. I'm just going to listen to them and I'm not going to let any others speak on that same subject because I trust wholeheartedly this person and there's nothing else. But do they line up? Do they, are they similar? And especially, I, I'm always thinking theology in this. Like, I understand that we could be talking about a gazillion different subjects, but I typically am thinking theology. I wonder why. <laughs> but ultimately, does the source of information line up with others? Like, if I read a commentary and I'm like, boy, that sure took me to a far-off destination, and then I read another commentary, and I'm like, oh, that's a lot closer. And then maybe I'll read another commentary, and I'll be like, okay. Like, now the first commentary I read seems like it was out in left field. Maybe I shouldn't put too much merit in that first commentary I read, because that's way out there in left field. And these other people, it seems that we're kind of on the same page in, in regards to this. So it seemingly lines up. Number three, could this source have any personal biases or outside influences? Could this source have any personal biases or outside influences? The answer is always yes, but more specifically, what are you looking for? Like if I'm watching a YouTube video of a guy talking about theology and he's expounding 1 Timothy chapter 1, you know, these verses, so on and so forth, and during the middle of him expounding, there comes a TV commercial or an ad for that, that he's doing for this specific product that's going to make it easier for me to read the Bible and it's going to be like the Cliff Notes version of the Bible and all these other things that might be a personal bias that might be an outside influence, maybe we should use a little discernment in what we're listening to at this point. Because now we've been revealed to us that maybe he's not doing it for the sake of this is the right thing to do. Maybe he's doing it because he wants to get this ad out there. He's doing it for a little extra money on the side, doing it, blah, 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 blah. Right? The list can be endless of the reasons why someone does it. That was number three. Number four. What is the purpose of the source sharing this information with me? Why are they doing it? Why do they do the things that they do? Or why are they having a conversation? Why is there an hour or two hour long sermon about various texts that ultimately in the end just breed hate about sin? Why? Is that profitable? Is that helpful? Why are they doing, what's the purpose of the source sharing this information? Is it to help me, to encourage me, to edify me? Is it 
to manipulate me? Is it to control me? Is it to get my money? Is it to get my favor, my influence, have them do something? Another, another way to simply look at it is, why did they write or say this? Why did they write or say this? And then lastly, probably the most important question, does this source's topic, does this conversation agree with the Bible and God's truth? Does it agree with the Bible and God's truth? And while it may seemingly be one of the hardest ones, over the course of time, it naturally fits. The more I'm in this every day, every week, every month, the more I stand firmly in understanding God's design and God's way. Now, does the topic actually agree with God and God's way? You know, I just gave you the example of the Mormons and the eternal marriage, and it's a big deal to them to get married in the, the Mormon temple. If you're able to get Mormon in, in the Mormon temple because you passed all their hoops and the hurdles to get married in the Mormon temple, it's a big deal. You're going to get lots of spiritual perks. You're going to get tons of spiritual benefits. Uh, they're going to promise you even more things if you get married in the temple. But then they say marriage is eternal. And that's not biblically true, is it? And so, got to take it all with a grain of salt, right? And so maybe all those promises they're giving me about being married in the temple and marriage being eternal and I'm going to get all these spiritual blessings, and maybe I should take it with a grain of salt because it's not biblically accurate. God has not promised this. God has not spoken on this. Yeah, you got to take it for what it is. Take it with a grain of salt. In Acts chapter 17, verse 11, Paul and Timothy, or oh, I think it was Paul and Silas, I apologize. I want to say it's Paul and Timothy because that's what this book's about, Paul and Timothy, both elders dealing churches, so on and so forth. But Paul and Timothy go to Berea. They leave Thessalonica and they go to Berea. And the very next verse, verse 11 of chapter 17 in Acts says, these Jews were more noble than those Jews in Thessalonica. Why? Because they received the word with all eagerness, and then they examined the scriptures daily to make sure what Paul was saying was true. And I've encouraged you all to do that too. Make sure what I'm saying is true. Take it all with a grain of salt. Don't just accept my truth because I'm human. I'm fallible. I make mistakes. I, I, like I told the team, like I'm about to go down a rabbit hole and totally change this entire sermon, so I'm done. I'm stopping right here, and we're going with this because that can happen. Also, like I run the danger of being a Pharisee and being a know-it-all and being better than other people. That's not the case. I promise you it's not. Everybody at the foot of the cross is equal. We just have different gifts and talents. And so I hope I can encourage you to use that discernment that God has given you, the right from wrong, the holy from the unholy, the righteous from the unrighteous. should be plain to see, but it, there's sometimes very gray areas, and you literally have to separate what you're seeing in order to get there. But much like the Jews in Berea, I hope you're like them. 
I hope you do fact check all these things and don't just listen to people because other people do. I've heard of many Bible studies talking about many topics and I'm very skeptical of them. But that's, again, part of me. But I hope you're using discernment in that and that they're telling you the truth and not trying to manipulate you or get you to do something rather than what the text is supposed to be. And so I want to finish with these last three major points of biblical truth. Because we've looked to talk about the inside of a person, we've talked about the outside of a person, but now you need the God truth laid on top of that. And what's fascinating to me, and especially talking about these people that manipulate and want to do things, much like I said in the beginning, and, and the most important thing you need to know, God's gift of salvation is free. If someone is trying to charge you for a free gift, they are jerks. I don't envy their position, and I question what God may or may not do to them in their lives for being such oppositional jerks. Because if God gives you a free gift, I should pass it on for free, right? And now I know what you're thinking. Well, what about offering? What about giving? What about other things? Look. This isn't tithing like the Old Testament where you were commanded to. We've had these conversations before. Offering is just that, an offering. It is not bound by a percentage. The old lady threw in two copper coins, and Jesus said she gave more than all the rest of you yokels who gave 10% of their dill and 10% of their mint and 10% of their money. She gave all she had. And God loves a cheerful giver. There is no command on you to do that. The reality of the truth is, if you trust us as the church, but more so you trust God that he provides for you, then you trust us as the church that we're honorable to God and that we're going to use that money well, should be a no-brainer. But the problem is trust. You don't necessarily trust God. Then you're not going to trust me for sure because you don't trust God to begin with. And, and the list goes on and on. The offering is always just that. If you've tasted and seen that the Lord is good, give back so that other people have the opportunity to taste and see that the Lord is good. You don't want to be selfish like the first point here where it's all about you. Give. I mean... Jesus came for you and gave his life for you. And you're worried about 10 bucks, 20 bucks, some nonsense like that. Oh, they might use it to buy tacos or they might use it to buy hot dogs, which is a great cause, by the way. I want you to know we're all about hot dogs here, right? Chris is like standing up in his seat now. Don't, don't miss my point, though, ultimately, is that, again, we see and, and we give and we do, and it is a free gift. But to do this and to continue to evangelize, to continue to be on mission, does take money. It's a necessary requirement. Don't be foolish. So, yeah, we need it. Duh. But at the same time, I'm not going to beat you over the head with it either. This is your walk with Christ. It's ultimately your decision, but know also that as part of the church covenant, that is part of what we do. You are commanded to give. It's in the Bible. 
percentages, other things, so on and so forth. That was Old Testament. It's not tithing. It's giving or it's an offering in the New Testament. God's gift is free. When I go to events, I give away Bibles, I give away pens, pencils, I talk with people, I give away food, I give. It's free. Don't let someone try to charge you for it. Second thing. This is a biblical truth. Something to stand firm on. Knowledge of the truth in Jesus changes us from the inside heart to the outside hands and feet by the power of the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. Religion, as what we've talked about today, is an outside-in type of transformation. If you just give 10%, if you just serve over here, if you just do this action, if you just do this action, then everything's going to be hunky-dory with Jesus. No, that's not how this works. Religion, the outside works, don't change the inside heart at all. In fact, what it will do is the opposite of what you think it does. At first, maybe it'll kind of make you feel better. Then you're going to start resenting it. Then you're going to start hating it. Then you're going to run away from it. Makes a difference if we know what we're doing and why we do the things that we do. And also how God works. And it's an inside-out transformation. As I'm looking at Seth, I'm remembering what Seth said. Salvation produces works. Works does not produce salvation. That's religion. That's the outside in theory. Jesus has to change that heart of stone to a heart of flesh in order for proper hand and feet movement. It's got to be inside to the outside. And then lastly, you saw a lot of people all about self. Lovers of self, lovers of money, unholy, ungrateful, this, that, and the other. And then it ends, avoid such people. Well, I tell you what, I understand why the prophets went and hid in caves then and, and ran away from everybody else. Well, avoid such people. I guess I got to avoid everybody and avoid myself. I need to just avoid, 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 avoid. Like that's not realistic, is it? We were made for people. We were made to be together with people. We were made dependent on God. We were made not to live alone. All of these things. And yet here's a command to avoid such people. He's not wrong, right? This is all about using discernment and being wise in our relationships, right? But God saves and loves awful sinners like us. God saves and loves awful sinners like us. So if you think you're better than other people and you're not that bad, congratulations, you've missed the point and you are that bad. You really are that bad. God loves and saves awful sinners than us. And even though you're around these people, and yes, there does come a point in time where you need to stop throwing your pearls at pigs and you have to stop giving dogs what is holy. 
There does come that time, but don't just live in exile, right? We're in the world, but not of it. Our citizenship is in heaven. Amen? In the world, but not of it. It's kind of hard to avoid people when we're on a mission to save people, which is Jesus' mission. They shall call his name Jesus because he will save their people from their sins. And as he's reminding Timothy in all this, look, there's a lot of mumbo-jumbo out there, man. I'm in jail right now as we speak. People hate me, people persecuting me, but don't fear. You are on the winning side. There is victory in Jesus. His gift of salvation is free. He changes people from the inside to the out. It's not about the works you do. It's about are you faithful to your heavenly father? And then lastly, God saves and loves awful sinners just like us. And so here we are. Use discernment as a gift of grace according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. You have been given the gift of discernment. I wholeheartedly encourage you to use it on a daily, hourly, minute-by-minute minute basis. It will save you heartache and pain and suffering, of which there is no escape. Because in this world, you will face tribulation, just like in this world in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. But use the tools that God's given us. Giving us words, prayer, Holy Spirit, discernment, the list goes on and on and on and on. There isn't a, enough hours in a day to give you all the blessings that God has done for us. So praise the Lord. Discern your actions and meanings for life through God's eyes. That's discernment. Lord Jesus, I certainly thank you for the knowledge of the truth. I thank you for the saving grace that you've given us. I thank you certainly that... Uh, Hearts and minds are changed for your glory and their good. And I thank that we have life now, true life with a heartbeat, and that life is eternal. And so, Lord Jesus, as we continue to grow and as we continue to be sanctified by the Holy Spirit, please just continue to lead us well and give us guidance, wisdom, and strength in all of our actions. Give us opportunities to see your truth and your word in action. And may it cause us to be like, wow, Lord, you're amazing. Thank you for the work that you continue to do in our lives. And thank you for the love that you continue to shower us with. And Lord Jesus, even though I am not the most merciful person, I thank you profusely for the mercy that you have shown each and every one of us in this room, that we may indeed come to this knowledge of the truth in the first place. We love you, Lord Jesus, and it's in your name. We'll forever pray until we don't need to pray, and we'll just talk to you face to face in heaven. We love you. Amen.